come up and lead us on. Welcome, everyone. We're delighted you're here. Turn around, shake someone's hand, and say, I'm glad you're here tonight. And then you may take a seat, have a seat. Please be seated. We are so delighted that all of you are here with us tonight, and, and we believe that God is going to help us and uh, teach us. I love the way Pastor Martin said that what we want to do is to take every thought captive to Christ. Does anybody know where that phrase comes from? What a great phrase. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. And just listen to this. This is, this is a very bold statement. The Apostle Paul says, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Wow. What a great high watermark it is for us as Christians to want to say that we want to take our thoughts captive to Christ. You know, that's not easy to do in our world. It's really, it's really not easy to do in our world because there is pressure from every side. There are thoughts from all around that would want us to think differently than the way Christ would want us to think. And when that happens, there's a collision. There's a collision. And so for our conference for this weekend, we're just going to ask ourselves, what happens when worldviews collide? The thoughts of God's people and the thoughts of the world. And how do we respond with love and grace and with truth? So, we are so glad you're here. If you got one of these brochures uh, in the weeks past, you know that tonight we're going to study the question, what is your worldview? Because everyone has one. You didn't know you had it. It's like having that mole, you know, on your back. You never see it, right? You have a worldview. You need to know it's there. You need to see it. You need to know what your worldview is. Tomorrow night, then we're going to ask the question, how do I apply it in my conversations with my friends and family and teachers and classmates and colleagues at work? How do I apply it to the issues in the public square? And then Sunday morning, we are going to align our hearts with Jesus Christ, who said, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me shall not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And I hope you'll be here tomorrow night and again Sunday morning. And bring your friends and family and, and uh, that you'll be here for this. Now, Saturday afternoon, we have a real treat. In a moment, I'm going to introduce our speaker. And I'm going to tell you 
that he is considered one of the foremost authorities on, in the nation on the Christian roots of the founding of the United States of America. And as I said to our church last Sunday, his celebrated book is entitled George Washington's Sacred Fire. And it is a highly documented <laughs> book about the Christian world and life view of George Washington. And of course, Peter is well acquainted with the Christian world and life view of the founding fathers. And why it's unfortunately not taught in the public schools and the universities, but it is important for you to understand that. And so he's going to offer a seminar at 1 p.m. from 1 to 2.15 on uh, the Christian roots of the founding of the United States of America. Fascinating, fascinating study. Then at 2.30, we will hold what we call uh, is our annual Gab Fest. And the Gab Fest is the opportunity for you to write down on a piece of paper or a three-by-five card your hardest question. Do you have a question about a text in the Bible that really puzzles you? Do you have a question about some aspect of theology that really puzzles you? Do you have a question about Christian ethics that's just hard to understand? And then we'll all turn and look at Peter and say, what's the answer? No, 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 we won't do that. The elders of our church will be here, the pastors of our church, and along with Dr. Lilbach, and we'll do our best to think out loud together, see if God gives us some light on these questions, and many of you will have helpful insights. But we like to have these gab fests, because in this church, you're allowed to think and you're allowed to ask questions. You're even allowed to doubt, because we all have questions. Our desire is to take every thought captive to Christ, right? So we're back right where we started. That's what we want to do. Does that sound like a great weekend to you? It sounds like a very healthy and, and informative weekend. Now, our speaker is a Dr. Peter Lilbach, the president of Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia and professor of church history. But Peter has not just taught church history. I had him... Uh, in the medieval church course about 30 years ago. And he was a young professor then. He's, he was really young back then. No gray hair back then. I did, I did. And I took medieval church from Dr. Lilbach and learned tremendous amount from our fathers in the faith from centuries past. How good it is, you know, when Christians wake up to the fact that we're not the first generation, and that's what professors of church history want us to learn and to know. But Peter has also taught the course of apologetics. Apologetics means the defense of the faith. And at Westminster Seminary, he has taught that classic introduction course to all the incoming students. Not every year, but he has taught the course on apologetics. And Sunday morning at 9.30 in this room during our adult Sunday school class, he is going to give us a general helpful introduction to what to say when worldviews collide about faiths? How do you defend your faith? And I know you'll want to be here for that. Peter is married to his wife, Debbie. He has two grown daughters, uh, very accomplished and, and thoughtful young women. Um, Peter travels the world. In fact, next weekend, he's off on a world tour. He will be in Africa, in Nigeria. He will be in Korea. He will be 
he will make stops all over the world to preach the gospel, to encourage people in the, in the uh, we call it the propagation of the faith, to cast vision that the church may grow with vigor and power around the world. And he represents Westminster Theological Seminary, which our Pastor Martin and our Pastor Tay and our Pastor John have all been blessed to attend. So we feel so privileged to have our friend and colleague Peter Lilbach to be with us today. Bow your heads with me. Let me pray for him, and then we will turn it over to Peter and ask God to speak through him. Our Father in heaven, we do have 10,000 reasons and more to praise you. Help us tonight, tomorrow, Sunday, to take every thought captive to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We humbly confess at the beginning of this conference that even though sometimes we might think we know it all, we do know better. We don't know it all. You command us to be disciples, to be learners, to be teachable. And it is our prayer for ourselves that you would give us, give me a teachable heart, a hungry and learning mind, a willingness to pay attention and to take every thought captive to Christ. We bless our brother Peter after uh, a long week of important, important work. He drove up to Long Island to be with us, and uh, we just bless him and pray you'd give him strength and grace and wisdom and give him a teachable spirit, too, as he is a fellow disciple and learner with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's uh, welcome Dr. Lilbeck. You know what's terrible about a great introduction? You can't live up to it. I'm in trouble now. You guys are all going to be going to sleep, you know. It's on a Friday night, and you're expecting this great lecture. And so, you know, I've come to realize that a a nodding audience doesn't always mean agreement. (laughs) And uh, I realize that it does show the truth that the Lord gives his loved ones rest. So if you need to take a nap... I, John used to sleep through my classes all the time, so you know I, I'm used to it. So it's okay. Uh, it's it, this is going to be a whirlwind. We're going to cover a lot, but one of the ground rules of our time together is that I want you to feel free to ask an honest question. Now, what's an honest question? It's a question where you say, "I'd really like to know the answer and get at the issue," but not to derail the conversation. That's called heckling. You know, there's polite hecklers and there's ugly hecklers. The ugly hecklers come in with picketing signs and take over. Polite hecklers are the guys who ask questions that go on for 10 minutes. And, you, and then you finally say, would you please tell me what your question is? And uh, when someone does that, I often like to say, would you repeat that question, please? <laughs> so I want you to really feel comfortable, though, honestly, to say, I, I'd like to stop. And it's not clear to me or I have a concern. And that's totally legitimate. Okay? I'm responsible to try to cover the material This isn't a Socratic method where I'm going to try to get you to do all the teaching. I'm going to try to lecture. But I really want you to feel comfortable enough to say, wait a second, I I don't understand or I'm concerned about. That's totally legitimate. 
I can't call on everybody probably, but I'm going to try to really engage it. Now, the other thing I want you to know about is that all that material that's there in the back is totally free. You don't have to pay a penny for it. It's my prop I mean, it's my literature. It's propaganda. I want you to take it. I want you to take it home, read it. It, it would make great Christmas presents for people that weren't at the conference. They'll think you went out and spent some money on them. Isn't that great? So there's a very clever, that's an apologetic technique too. It's called borrowed capital. We'll talk about that later, right? <laughs> so seriously, I hope you will look that all over. And uh, there's two categories of literature back there, one of which is, has to do with things that come out of the theological work of Westminster Seminary. In fact, there is a stack of books back there called The Practical Calvinist, where one of the contributors is your senior pastor. We did that together with about 25 other people to honor one of our professors at Westminster. And they're going to go fast. There's only about 10 of them back there, so we don't want any fighting over those books. But you, whoever first come, first serve. They're yours. And you might even get John to, to sign on, the, on, his, on his article. Uh, so there's Westminster literature. There's also a lot of literature there that's designed uh, for my hobby ministry, which is really the founding of America. For whatever reason, being in Philadelphia, being a church historian, that area became very interesting to me. And so my work on Washington and other things come out of that. And there's uh, material. I hope you'll take it. I really mean this. I don't want to take any of it back home with me. I brought it all for you. If it runs out on top, there's even some more boxes underneath. Take it. But I will take it home if you don't want it. I'll be very offended, but I will take it home. Okay? So seriously, it's there for your use. Okay. As we get started, I want to read two biblical texts. If you're able to turn in the scriptures, put your finger first in Matthew chapter 5. You'll recognize that's the first of the three chapters of Jesus' great Sermon on the Mount. I want to look at Matthew chapter 5, and then I also want you to find John chapter 8. These are two texts that are very much related in our conversation and study that we're going to be having this weekend. In Matthew chapter 5, we read these words in 13 uh, and following. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In those words, Jesus says to his followers, you are salt and light. My study is really called being salt and light in a fallen world. This is who we're supposed to be. Jesus said so. What does that mean? What does that look like? Okay, now we also want to look quickly at the text in the Gospel of John, John chapter 8 and verse 12, and it says, Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In these words, we are being given a teaching, a doctrine about who Christ is. He is the light of the world. 
And he is a giver of light, a unique kind of light, a light that's associated with life, the light of life that his followers have. You see, there's got to be a connection there somewhere, don't you think? If we're the light of the world, we follow him, we have the light of life, because he is the light of the world. And now this sounds almost a little bit daring, but there's some sense in which we're becoming like Christ. We're becoming miniature Christs. We become light bearers in the world. And that's what we're talking about here in this study together. Now, as we begin to think about these things, would you not agree that we are living in a day where if you enter into a discussion about your faith, people will want to change the subject? Say, we don't want to talk about that. They may be very blunt and say, I don't talk about that kind of stuff. Or they might be more subtle by saying, oh, yeah, man, did you see what the Giants did this weekend? It's just, we're just going a whole different way. It's almost as if it's like the non-smoking signs that you see all over nowadays. Go outside to smoke. Now, you might like smoking, you might not like smoking. I'm not here to debate nicotine and smoking. But I'm saying it's almost like it says, no truth allowed here. No truth claims permitted. If you're going to get involved in telling us what you believe, go outside. Don't do that here. Not in my house, not in my presence, not in my relationship, not in my college classroom, not in my school. No, don't do that. And this is an expression of what has been called post-modernism. Some of you are art students and you've heard that term applied to forms of art. But postmodernism is a philosophy that has deeply entered into Western culture, and it basically lives out the idea of there is no truth of any ultimate sense. Okay, so let me give you a few examples as we get started. This is uh, an example of what I think postmodernism is. There is a man by the name of Alan Bloom. He wrote a book called The Closing of the American Mind. Might be an interesting book if you want to pursue this topic. He's really looking at the university and how this philosophy, this way of looking at the world, has entered into the highest level of education. When you get talking about the university, that's, that's where we have our highest learning. And here's what he says. Today's university student believes one thing deeply. It has reached the status of an axiom. He is absolutely convinced that truth is relative, and he is astonished if anyone is foolish enough to challenge the point. This relativism is not the product of theoretical reasoning. It is, so the student believes, a moral postulate of a free society. Now, this is the money phrase. Listen carefully to this, okay? He has been taught from childhood that the danger of absolutism is not error, but intolerance. Thus, in our democratic society, openness is the highest virtue. The supreme insight is not to think you are right at all. The really educated person says, nobody can really know anything. There's no real truth about any of that big stuff. 
And so another person put it this way. In this world, we all have a narrative, a story. It would be fun if we had plenty of time to go down and say, okay, tell me your story. Tell me your story. We already heard John's story. We don't hear, he tells it every Sunday, right? Tell me your story. We all have a story. And they're all personal, they're all unique, and they're what we live with. They're our background. But the postmodernist thinkers say, while there are many narratives and they're all great, there are no meta-narratives. Okay, now what in the world is meta-narrative? John said, this is a word I'm going to have to teach you now because this is maybe a new one. If you've been in a philosophy class, you've heard it. It's called the word metaphysics. Let me explain that word now. This is the word that you're going to learn if you don't know it, and you're going to impress your friends with it. This is a $50 word. Okay, you learn this, and then your next conversation, you say, you don't know anything about metaphysics. Go, wow, that person's educated. So you've got to learn this word, master it. Take it in and make you, it's one of those power words, okay? All right, now, you all know what physics is, right? Physics is the study of the natural forces in the world. Well, Aristotle, that ancient Greek philosopher, was a student of nature, and he wrote a book on physics, the physical world. And we still study physics today. We're far beyond Aristotle, whatever he could think about. But he also had ideas about what we can call the the ultimate questions of things, the big questions of things. What makes the world what it is on a higher level? The meaning of it. How does logic work? What are those transcendent ideas? He said those ideas are not physics. They are beyond physics. And he called them metaphysics. They go along with and beyond the physical world. It's the spiritual reality. And so one French postmodern by the name of Leotard said, there are no grand narratives anymore. There are no meta-narratives anymore. There are no big stories that explain the world anymore. What would be an example of a big story? That there's a God who created the world. And he created the foundation of the human race who rebelled against him. And because of this God's compassion and love, he found a way to restore that relationship. Does that sound like a story? That's the gospel story, isn't it? There's no place for that in our world anymore. There are no big stories. They're all wastes of time. There is no truth out there. There's just truths, in the plural right here. And so what matters is your story and your story and your story, and they're all true, and that's all that matters. There's no story that talks about all of us. We're all different. And so everybody has the right to make their own meaning and truth in the world. That's the way the world, that's called tolerance. You've got your way, I've got my way, all ways are right as long as I'm involved. Now, we've added another word to this. You know, I, I really can see this all. I'm even involved in it now, you know. They got me on Twitter and Facebook now. You know, I'm an old-fashioned guy. There's something just really strange about when you pick up a camera and take a picture of yourself. I see people doing that all the time now. Oh, man, this will be great for my Facebook page. Click. I'm even doing it. I call that narcissism. 
That's when you're in love with yourself. I can't get enough pictures of me. I've got to take them. I don't have anybody else. I'll get the right pose. And then I'll let everybody see me. You see, that's an expression of postmodernism taken to another extreme. Now it's, there's no other story in the world except each individual story, so I might as well tell my story. Just love me. You want to listen to me, you love yourself, but I'm going to tell you about me because I'm important. In fact, I found the greatest love of all. It's deep inside of me. It's me loving myself. It's self-esteem. It's self-love, and that's all that matters. Okay, now, I'm being a little bit facetious, but, you know, really not too much, am I? We all identify that that's kind of the context in which we are living today. Now, let me give you a few other examples of postmodernism and its influence on us. Let me think of uh, an example. Maybe you've never heard of a man by the name of Richard Rorty. He's a philosopher that's now passed away. He died in about the age of 75 in 2007. He was written up in the New York Times in their obituary. And basically what he said was this. Truth is what your peers will let you get away with. Okay, what does that mean? If you, truth has no reality, objectivity at all. Truth is only what people won't stop you from saying. If your group of people say that's truth, then it's truth. If they don't let you get away with it, it's not truth. So it's all the community defining its truth. There's nothing that's out there. The metaphysics, the meta-narrative, the transcendent story, the gospel explanation of the world, it doesn't exist anymore. Now, whether you know that or not, that's the kind of world in which we speak the gospel into. Okay, so that's part of our task of knowing what it means to defend our faith in a world that says the only truth is what you make for yourself. I don't like your truth. This is my truth. And in that kind of world, another thing we find is that people basically say the truth is measured not by any sense of its matching reality or its logical consistency. It's if, it, if I think it's pretty or attractive or, or tasteful or something I'm comfortable with. In other words, there's no real truth to truth. Okay, I could go on and on about that, but now let's stop for a moment and think about, I have an outline for you tonight. So we have, the news is filled with issues of controversy in the public square. And I listed some examples. The war, the war on terror, the aftermath of the war in Iraq, homosexual marriage. How does... Politics and religion relate. What about abortion and euthanasia? Should we care about any of those things? Okay, now, in a world in which there is no truth, one position should be we don't have any p- opinions. What well, just have your own opinion? But does that sound like the evening news? Does that sound like the government debates? Does that sound like the university? Does that sound like a political party platform? So of course not. There's an opinion. There's a strong view, and it says this is the way it is. And so in a world where there is no truth, truth is replaced 
by power. By someone who says, I'm in a position to make you take my view. It's not the pursuing of what is objective, but it's the influence of how we can get you to think like us, to vote like us, to stand with us. Now, I bet if we went through all of these issues that we would be a divided group tonight. Some would say this was good, that was bad. I'm not here to debate any of that, but we could do that. What I want you to get at is what John was saying, your pastor was saying earlier. Whether you know it or not, everybody has a faith system, a philosophy, a world view. Everybody. An example, when you go to a football game, do you make a point to watch the referees and the umpires? You don't even care about them, except when they make a bad call. Then you curse them out, and then you go back to watch the game. But you realize that nothing can happen in the game without those guys. They represent the rules and enforce them. That's what a worldview does. A worldview is what creates the rules of your thinking and your actions and how you conduct yourself. And it doesn't matter what system we have. We're going to look at some of the possibilities of different worldviews. But let's take a moment with that kind of recognition of the confusion that's about truth, the attempt to persuade us to take a particular view even though they say there's no truth, you must hold my position. What is a worldview? It's these transcendent stories, whether we accept them or not. And I want to start by asking the question, how do we define a Christian worldview first? So here's the things that I want you to think about. First of all, for a Christian, our transcendent reality is not ourselves. A Christian doesn't say, I start with me. I start with God. God is the ultimate reality of everything. God is. His name is I am. He is real existence. This is the beginning of a story of all things, a meta-narrative, a metaphysics, a world view, how we explain everything. God is the first assumption of the Christian view. Where does the atheist begin? No God. The atheist begins, there is a God. This is my beginning point. Now, as we think about that, what we also recognize is that this God is the creator. Certainly there's matter. There is order. There are planets. There's all sorts of cause and effect relationships. But this God is the creator of all things. So creation is part of our view. God is but he's distinct from the creation. Now, one of the teachers of the early Westminster Seminary always started his lectures with this image. He would put two circles on the board, a big circle and a little circle with two lines connecting them. And he said, you can not know any meaning in the world unless you know the difference between the creator and the creature. The creator-creature distinction and that this creator has spoken to his creation. 
If you don't have that, you don't have the basis to know anything. Okay, we're going to come back and talk about that, okay? So you can see I'm actually building that into here. God is our first beginning of a Christian worldview. He has created everything. Secondly, the creation that the Creator has given us, the Creator has given us creation, it is damaged. We call that the fall. As wonderful and beautiful as this world is, we all know there's something wrong with it. Let's, let's take a few examples. How is it possible that a child that is so beloved and beautiful grows up and takes the life of the one who gave him life? It happens, doesn't it? How is it possible that someone who said, I want to spend my whole life with you, years later turns around and says, I don't never want to talk to you again? That happens, doesn't it? The world is beautiful, but it's filled with pain. Love, but heartache. We live and we die. Good people suffer, and it doesn't seem fair. Bad people seem to get away with everything. There's something wrong with this world. This is part of the way Christians look at the world. It is our worldview. It is our meta physics. It's at looking at the ultimate story that explains reality. Okay? Creation, fall. What else do we believe? Well, I'm going to put a cross here, and I'm going to use the word redemption under it. Okay? The cross, the redemption. God, according to the Christian explanation of reality, did not leave man in the pain of the fall that he's actually begun to address the thing called sin and death and suffering. And as a result of that, there's something that all of history is pointing to. And what is that? It's the restoration of all things. And we use a big word called hope. Okay? Everything is moving to a point where we believe that God will make all things new. There's the resurrection the new creation, where we will dwell with God and God with us. We shall see His face. He'll dry every tear from our eyes. Suffering and pain will flee away. What a wonderful picture. And then in the midst of all of this, we say, how do we know these things? Because God Himself has revealed them to us. Okay? So if you listen carefully, I've given you some very powerful words that I hope, if you don't learn anything else from this time together, I hope you'll take these with you, okay? You should jot them down. You don't have to use my silly chart here. But learn these words. God. Creation. Fall. Redemption. Hope. Through revelation. Okay? God. Creation. Fall, redemption, hope, revelation. Six words. These are the six extraordinary words that define what we call the Christian world view. It's how we look at the world. It's how we make sense of everything. It is that which is beyond just the physical life. It is our metaphysics.
our transcendent meaning. It is our meta-narrative. I'm giving you some big words. I want you to learn those or at least be recognizing them. But the key thing is, do you realize when you put these together, you have a basis to build a whole philosophy of life and also to engage other worldviews? Because there are many worldviews. Let's take an example of some different things that might happen by just looking at the items that we have. Okay, what kind of a worldview would we have if we have all of these things, but we put a big X through the fall? Everything's just wonderful. Do you know there's a form of worldview that says there is no problem, everything is perfect? Okay. What did you say? Say it real loud. Christian science science would be one example. It's just mind over matter. You're just misunderstanding the world. Okay? Another possibility could be Protestant liberalism, that man is basically good. He's evolving and getting better all the time. Okay? Sin is not believed. That would be one view, okay? How about if we say, all right, uh, we believe that the fall exists, but we just don't believe in the cross. Okay, we, we still say, well, there's a God who's created and man is bad, but it's not the cross, but there's hope. Well, that's a works righteousness system, right? We could say any religion that says man does it himself. He doesn't need a savior. He does it himself. We, well, that could be various forms of uh, self-righteousness. And I don't mean to offend anybody, but some extreme forms of Catholicism almost fall into that point. Uh, Many forms of Judaism might fall into this point. They would say, you know what? There's a God who's created. But if you really do good, it takes care of it. You you just do it yourself. Okay? All right, now let's let's go another step. What what happens if we say, well, we don't believe in creation? Okay, well, then you say, well, we got a God, but he hasn't created. That means creation has always been here. God has been here forever, and maybe God and that means God and creation are the same. What would that be? Well, that's kind of like pantheism, maybe the New Age spirituality that nature and God are indistinguishable. What I'm showing you is that by just looking at these simple words and saying, well, are they true or not true, you're actually beginning to describe some of the most powerful movements in the world. Do you see what I'm doing? I'm, I'm touching the world with these few little moves. And that shows you that there's something powerful about these six words. Maybe they really do describe reality in some way. That if by just taking away one, you begin to see a whole new system of thought. Okay, Take a look at another one. What if we say that uh, there's no hope? Okay, Well, that means that uh, if you couple no hope, that maybe that you can only find meaning in the here and now. There's nothing beyond this life right now. Would that sound like the social gospel? Forget about telling people about heaven and hell. That's all a waste of time. Just make sure that they're fed. Just make sure they have a roof over their head. Doesn't matter what you believe. Just make sure you take care of people. There's something good about that, humanitarianism. But you've changed things. Now, these different ideas are fascinating, but what really becomes interesting is... What happens if you say, well, there's a God, 
but there's no revelation at all. Then what? Well, have you ever heard of deism? There's a first cause way out there, but man, we don't know anything about him. He's never spoken to us. We can't speak to him. And maybe he is the big banger that lit the spark, but we don't know anything about him. He's just out there. But probably the most important one, and obviously, as we've already hinted, is when people say, I don't believe this. If there is no God, what are the consequences? Well, there's no creation. Then what's wrong with the world? That's an interesting question. If you take a fully secular view of reality and you say, I don't believe in God, and yet all of us recognize there's something wrong with the world. What's wrong with the world? Do you know what a lot of secular, let's say atheists, or another word, materialist, said all that's real is this natural world, there's nothing beyond it. Do you know what's wrong with the world? The fact that you listen to a guy like John Yenchko on Sunday. He's the problem. This guy from Westminster, he's diluting 600 students a year by running a seminary. And if we're really going to take care of the mess in this world, we've got to do something about it. Now, now stop and think. We're just trying to think about worldviews. Okay, if there's no God and the world has problems, it's the problem is that there's all these people trying to teach us there's a God when there isn't one. They're lying to us. They're wanting us to spend our time and our energy and our resources to serve a God that doesn't exist. And that means that one of the highest qualities we possibly can have in the world is to shut down religion. We've got to end it somehow. In any means we can because it's the problem in this world. And what is the salvation? Well, maybe it's redistributing of wealth or it's... but certainly getting rid of religious mythology. We are the problem as a church. This church is a problem in a secularist mind. We say, well, don't worry about that. We believe in religious liberty. They're going to take good care of us. Wait a second. Religious liberty may not flow from an atheistic worldview. You might, they might say, no, there shouldn't be religious liberty because you keep our advancing things that are destroying human happiness by giving us delusions and lies. We need to get rid of religion. So let me stop for a moment. I'm going to open it up for some questions because I've given you a lot of ideas. We want to catch our breath in a minute. But let me give you a summary statement. Here's, here, here are the points I want you to hear. Everybody has a worldview. Everybody. And their worldview is going to engage by affirming, diminishing, or denying the words that I've just been talking about. What are those six words? God, creation, fall, redemption, hope, and revelation. It's, the, it's how you deal with those words explains how you construct the world. All human beings are going to engage these questions. And I'm going to argue that faith and practice are directly related this is my last point before our question break. We'll get, ready, get you some questions ready for me now. Okay, show me that you weren't completely sleeping. Okay? All right. So 
You know the Westminster Shorter Catechism. You've probably heard it quoted. Some of you have taught it. Some of you memorize some of it. Do you remember how it's structured? It says what we are to believe about God and what duties God requires of us. That's how it's structured. It's your faith and your practice, right? You believe something, certain behavior flows from it. That's true about worldviews. Every worldview at the end of the day is a faith system. No philosophy is an absolute position of, well, we have reason and experience and you Christians are the people that have faith. Everybody has faith. An atheist has faith there is no God. He cannot disprove God's existence. He just doesn't believe that God exists. He can't prove that. But he starts with that. And just as a Christian, if we believe something about God and the fall and creation and the cross and hope, it impacts our behavior. Why do we send out missionaries? Because we believe the cross is true. Why else would we do that? We want people to hear about Christ. And so an atheist, if he says, I believe there's no God, says, I need to do something about the religion problem. I need to do something about it. I don't need to worry about some revelation called the Ten Commandments. Those don't even exist. They don't govern my life. What you believe determines how you behave. Whether it's consistent or inconsistent, they're always directly connected. And that means that this idea of a worldview is inevitably going to create a certain kind of lifestyle, certain principles of ethics, of behavior, of rights and wrongs that will be lived. And so it's all of faith, and then there's behavior that flows from it, and it doesn't matter what system. Okay, now I'm going to talk about some examples of some of the different systems that exist in the world But I'd like to stop and give you a chance, because I said I would, for some questions, comments, a little debate or interaction. Who wants to take a minute? Do you have a... Yes, sir. Tell me your name. Uh, Michael Rogers. Thank you, Michael. What's your question or comment? Um, You know, Dostoevsky and his brother Karamazov, the great little club chapter of the Grand Inquisitor, and he really sounds the alarm of... You know, Michael. Okay, let's let's use the microphone. Okay. Okay. the Russian uh, author Dostoevsky, um, in his uh, Brothers Karamazov, there's a chapter of the Grand Inquisitor. He really sounds the alarm of uh, atheistic humanism. Um, the Grand Inquisitor takes the stance that there is no God, or even if there is, we're going to shut it out, and we're going to solve all these this fallen wall, uh, fallen world um, ourselves. And that has been encroaching upon us, and you see it through, you know. Uh, Western uh, society since then, but we seem to be asleep, really. I mean, we really don't even be, it's almost like we're not even paying attention, just, you know, this encroachment um, and putting out, uh, I mean, it was only in the 1960s where you could say prayer in church, and slowly but surely, we seem to be losing, uh, you know, at least in this country, our Christian roots. Did you see you meant prayer in school, right? Oh, prayer in school, I mean, but, yes. But I'm glad you said prayer in church because we may lose that too before we know it. Yeah. So I guess my question is, yeah. you know, why are we, our heads are in the sand on, on this important issue? Okay. Well, there was one particular um, apologist who was uh, quite 
impactful when I was a young student. His name was Francis Schaeffer. And maybe you've heard his name. His books are still in print. He's not as well known today as he was years ago. But he used to say, for many Christians, our engagement with the public square, which is what we're talking about, how do we talk about these issues, uh, probably isn't going to happen until our personal peace or our possessions, our prosperity are impacted. There is a kind of a bubble that surrounds a Christian family. What is it? Well, we love our family, we work hard, uh, we go to church, we're doing our thing, and we get involved, and that's all we get. Life's good. Life's good. And, you know, there are other people that got problems out there, and by the way, we, maybe that's for a handful of people like pastors and maybe some a- social activists. Don't worry about that. That's not my problem. And what has happened over time is that the power of a culture that has lost some of these core values that we once shared, the idea that at least there's a God to whom we're accountable, that's no longer a given. But there was once a sense that where most people really did believe that. They thought twice, I'm going to give account to God if I do this. You know, if I go into a court of law and I say, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God, I said, I better be careful what I say because God's going to hold me accountable for this. Today, the counsel may well be lie through your teeth because they can't prove you wrong. There's no God anyway. And where's been the drift? Well, it's been generations in America where little by little we've been moving farther and farther away from these core things. So if you want a historical answer, there was a decision that was reached by several uh, university leaders in the late 1800s. So this 1890s, we call it the Gilded Age in America, where they said the universities are all run by pastors. Imagine this. The boards of universities, the majority were all ministers. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, all of them. They were the ministers. They said we need to break the religious monopoly of the boards of our universities because we want to be more secular. And so the first step was to begin to change the religious guidance of the highest levels of the university. Well, when you no longer have biblical values at the top, well, then decisions are going to be made in a different way than if you do have leaders that have biblical values. Okay? So if the university begins to move in a more secular ground, well, what's going to happen? That means that shortly other institutions that are impacted in the next generation by the universities are going to be impacted. What might those be? Well, I think one of those are the state, the government. Government leaders are going to begin to say, well, I was raised in a neutral philosophy of there's no God, the Bible is not important in any ultimate way. It's just one among many opinions. So you begin to see the movement from a university change to actually political leadership in various ways. And once you begin to change the political leadership, you're also going to begin to change the courts because the courts are going to be reflected in the politics. But it's also coming from the university. Who trains the university? Well, they train a lot of the pastors in America. And so pretty soon, if you have a university system that's beginning to say, well, we really are not sure about God and we don't believe in creation and the fall is not something we can believe in, 
And if there's redemption, there's many ways that men can be redeemed by their good works or by following a Confucius or Buddha or maybe the cross. But, and the hope, ultimately, we're not sure what that is, but we'll make it in this life. The church becomes less and less committed to its values. And so when you lose the key presuppositions at the highest level and begin to train people in those values, over time, the other institutions that are under their insight will be impacted. And so we have seen in our lifetime the impact of that on the family. There was a time in America where everybody knew exactly what a family was. Now, you may have many different views on marriage, divorce, uh, the issue of genders in marriage. But, you know, there was a time in America, there was no debate on this. We all knew what a family was. But once you lose a, a biblical sense of transcendence of truth, everything begins to be redefined. So the question is, where have we been? Well, there have been several responses. One response is that Christian colleges have emerged. That was one of the ways of saying universities have given up on a Christian worldview. The Bible college and the Christian college and university were part of that. Biblical seminaries began to develop. Westminster Seminary was one example of that, trying to say we must have people that really believe in the scriptures if we're going to have biblical churches. We just can't have them being trained by anybody. We need to have people that believe in the word. So we've tried to do this in different ways. But in terms of our own individual lives, I think what we have not done as well as we should is to train individuals to engage these questions in a way that's unique to each person without saying, well, you have to become a Republican to engage moral issues in the culture. We've allowed ourselves to be persuaded that everything's political. This is not a political issue. This is a Christian issue. So regardless of our political affiliation, what denomination we belong to, the question is, are we still committed to asking the question, what should a Christian think and act like in this matter as an individual, and will I do what's right? Okay, so there's been a slide of all kinds through the last four generations in American history, and now it's coming down right to the point of our individual lives where many things are unbelievable in my lifetime. I would never have thought I've seen now or here regularly. Okay, so it's been a steady movement over time. What's the response? We need to be salt and light. You need to say, what do I do within my sphere? We'll talk more about that in some of our other conversations. Tomorrow night. It's really, his, your, you're keeping your powder dry yeah. to uh, bring that to us tomorrow night. Yeah. Okay. So that's the beginning of an answer. Okay, anyone else? Yes. Gentlemen? Yeah. My name is Peter. Um, so Richard Dawkins explains that morality and our reasoning does not come from God, does not come from religion. And he tries to defend that morality comes through evolution and because we're passing on our genes, because our genes are rooted to have these morals, that, that explains why we act the way we do and there's a overall world consensus of what morality is. So against a person like that, how do I defend that absolute morality can't be 
explained by science or other form of reasoning. Okay, well, I don't know, John, if you're willing to share your story about one of the great philosophers of, uh, and scientists. Would you share that story? Because I think it's, this, he has the great story about this. I'll... <laughs> I was telling Peter tonight that, and some of you may have heard this, but I was invited to a party over here on the North Shore, and um, a man walks up with a double helix on his tie, and it was Dr. James Watson who won the Nobel prize in biology for the discovery of DNA. And uh, he's been on Charlie Rose a lot, and, and Watson likes to say that the greatest gift to humanity that science has brought is not the elimination of polio, but the elimination of God, the elimination of religion. So anyway, he comes up, and, and the lady I'm talking to introduces us, and she, he says, she says, Dr. Watson, this is John Yenchko, new pastor in town, and kind of rolls his eyes, and they talk about tennis for a while. And then suddenly, he turns to me and points his finger, and he says, morality. We at the Cold Spring Harbor Labs, that's just right over the hill, we at the labs believe that there is a seed of a desire for truth in the human genome, and we're going to discover where in the human genome there is truth. Now, the lady that was standing next to me said, Oh, James, I don't love the truth. He looks at her. She says, I only like it when it's convenient for me. Right? And, um, and I said to him, well, Dr. Watson, he says, oh, no, you like the truth. You might tell a little white lie, but you love the truth. And she says, I just see the world as I see it, a very postmodern view. And I said, Dr. Watson, could it be that both you and Caroline have seen things actually as they are but the explanation that he's seeking is not, and I said, Dr. Watson, the explanation you want is not biological, but theological. That is to say that you've observed men are interested in the truth, and that's because all human beings are made in the image of God. But Caroline is right when she says people don't love the truth because the Bible also teaches that all men are liars. It says it in the Bible, and it's true. The human heart is deceitful. He looks at me, and then he says... Compassion. We at the labs believe that the seed of compassion is in the human genome, and we're going to find it. And she says, she's like a tag team wrestler on Raw, you know? And she tags in, and she says, oh, James, I'm not compassionate. He says, oh, well, you give away all this money. And she says, giving away money is no sacrifice to our family. And I said, Dr. Watson, if I could be so bold. Could it be that you've both observed reality as it is, but the explanation is not biological, but theological? That is to say that God revealed himself in Exodus 33 as the compassionate God. God, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate God. And all human beings are made in his image. And so there is a seed of compassion in every human heart. But Caroline is right. There's a lot of times we don't care. And the Bible even says a mother can forget her child. And so you've both observed something that's true, but the explanation is, not, is really not explained without God. And um, he goes, we at the labs <laughs> need to hire a bioethicist to sort all this out. And he turns on his heel and he walks away. And it, it is interesting. The lady said to me, she said, I don't know you, but she said, nobody has ever spoken to James Watson. 
like that before. And she said, oh, God must have sent you to talk to him. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> I, I don't know. I have not a chance to follow up. But, you know, this, what, part of the answer is the metaphysic narrative you need to have, I need to have, and that's what I tried to do. I tried to tell him, you need to understand this through the reality of God. You need to understand that he's created us, but that we're also fallen. It's just like that whole conversation fell right through this, uh, through this meta-narrative or through these biblical principles. Um, the other thing, if I could I just Please. throw in, is I heard a comedian tell a story, and he said, the animals were on the plain of Africa, and it was night, and the moon was shining, and they were seated around in a circle in the moonlight, and the chimpanzee came, and he grabbed a violin, and he began to play. He played the violin so beautifully that it mesmerized all the animals and filled their hearts with peace. And the tune wafted through uh, the bush. Everyone listened, and the beauty was palpable. And then the jaguar got up and grabbed the chimpanzee by the neck and broke his neck and ate him, and then licked his lips as all the animals turned and looked at him. And the jaguar said, What? And that's what the atheist is saying. What? Survival of the fittest. I, I was hungry. I lived on my impulse. But if there's a God and God is beautiful and if he's created beauty in the world, then that's how we understand beauty. Because beauty is a function of God in the world. And the, the, there's a breaking of beauty and there's ugliness in the world. What explains ugliness and violence in the world? The fall explains it. Well, does your meta-narrative have any hope of re any redemption in it? And does your story, the story that you think explains the world around you, does it give you any hope that... Monkeys can be protected as they create beauty. You know, you, you see, it's, it all—it really does fit. I'm sorry for talking so long, but no, those good. are good stories that explain how the, the meta narrative, how important that is. And Richard, there are just just yesterday, I read on Miklos. You sent me the uh, what was that story in the British Telegraph, written by an atheist who said he was fed up with Richard Dawkins. Right, Miklos? Is that what that's fair to say? That's what he said? So that Dawkins is he's he just rants about how much he hates religious people so much that Dawkins only loves one thing. What does this great professor at Oxford University love? He said, himself. Me, 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 me. And he says, I'm tired of hearing Richard Dawkins talk about me. Because that's that's it's to since there is no God, you, Peter said it so profoundly, what this other atheist observed about Dawkins, self-centered, autonomous man tries to define everything. 
was really very, really interesting. Thank you for that article, Nicholas. So Excellent. this gentleman in the back. Yeah, I just have a thought. I'm Barry Fisher. Um, I just have a thought about, uh, you know, a couple. Of, yeah, there have been some noteworthy atheists who have said that, you know, the um, sense of morality has evolved. But if if you look at the roots, you know, if if any atheist intellectual will say that we were created through evolution, but evolution is anything but moral, right? It's it's rooted in ruthless indifference and violence. And so, you know, doesn't it seem kind of strange that, you know, a sense of morality would evolve out of, you know, such a harsh, such a harsh uh, origin? So, um. okay. Well, when you when you hear these sorts of things, it's uh, one of the best things we can do is to look at the uh, some of the extreme cases and test the idea. So, we remember at the Nuremberg trials, we were told that there was a crime against humanity that was committed by the Nazis and their destruction of the handicapped, the affirmed, the gypsies, and extraordinarily the Jews. Crime against humanity. Wow. Well, we just all know it's wrong. Well, on an evolutionary basis, if Hitler had succeeded in developing the atom bomb first, it would have been right. Because power, at the end of the day, determines who writes history and what's right in the evolutionary process. Power determines who survives and who doesn't. They create the truth. Can there be a crime against humanity if that is really the system? We come face to face with a contradiction for which there is no answer. The only option is to say, no, it's hardwired in our hearts. This comes back to your question. Well, show me the DNA. Where is it that shows us? And if that's the case, why does one person kill a bunch of people saying you have life that's unworthy of life and someone else is trying to defend them? What DNA? Okay. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, to the young guy there, the, the axiom of, of, of evolution, the mutation that is selected by nature, um, it works both ways. If you're going to choose that for, for morality, if Dawkins suggests there's a, a gene for morality, then there's a gene for evil as well. And nature has been persistently selecting evil, especially in high places of ruler, uh, rulership. Um, so that's the refutation of Doc Dawkins' claim right there, is that there's a persistence of evil that harbors amongst the, the, the air of humanity, and um, it, it would be selecting that just as much as it would be the moral one, or much less than the moral one, I'm sorry. So you are forced to have all kinds of explanations once you don't have these essential pieces of the exactly. meta-narrative. Okay, very good. You want to wrap okay. things up? Well, well let's, let's wrap it up. We have a, just a couple minutes left for tonight. But let, let's review quickly, and then let me give you just a few final thoughts. First of all, we said we're living in a world that is filled with a denial of any transcendent metaphysical meta-narrative, worldview truth, okay? But to deny it, you actually are reflecting a worldview. That's what's interesting. It is actually a self-refuting position because when you say, we can't talk about those things, I'm a, I'm a postmodern. Well, you're talking about ultimate reality in a negative form. How dare you do it? 
See, a true postmodern would just say, I just can't know anything. But that's the point. They can't do it. The people who say there is no truth, we need to be tolerant, they're never tolerant of anybody except their own politics. That's the point, the inconsistency that we're left with. So as Christians, the first thing we need to do is not be ashamed that we are people of faith. Everybody's a person of faith when it comes to ultimate reality. We are bold enough to declare what we believe. Paul says, I have believed, therefore I have spoken. We believe that God exists. He is self-existing. He is the reality. We don't believe you can make sense of the world without him. We tried to give a few examples already. This God is the source of all that is, the creator, and it is not him. He is distinct from what he has created. The world is damaged by the reality of man's rebellion against God. This is a beautiful but cursed world. The story of the beauty and the beast, the truth is that's every one of us. Every human being is extraordinarily beautiful. Every human being is extraordinarily beastly. And that's who we are. Redemption. Isn't it amazing? Everybody knows we need to make the world better. Nobody says, just leave it alone. They said, there's too many people. Well, get rid of them, then it'll be better. Or they're hungry, we need to feed them, or we need to educate them, or we need to redistribute wealth, or we're trying to redeem the world in some way. We say that redemption is the gift of grace through the cross and resurrection of Christ. Now, what is the hope? Well, I want to say to you, there ultimately is no real hope apart from Christianity. If you wanted to ask me what is one of the most compelling messages that Christianity has to offer, is that we actually do have a hope. Bertrand Russell, the great uh, mathematician, atheist, humanist, said, the great wisdom of human being and all of its noonday genius and glory is destined for extinction and the vast conflagration of the universe when all things disappear. You have no meaning. Isn't that great? That's his hope. My, I, I'm utterly meaningless in all of my genius. That's useless in the long run. You say, no. You have eternal dignity, significance. How do we know this? God has spoken. You say, but you can't say that. How can you say there's no God? I say there is a God and he's spoken. And this is the scriptures. That is the great challenge. It's called the leap of faith, if you want, and we all make it. We believe that Jesus is the truth. Others say he's not. And we're going to talk about the different results that there are. Now, what we want to do in our last minute is that every worldview is going to answer the questions. These six points are going to have a view about them. Every one. And isn't that fascinating? Christianity creates the paradigm of all of human thought. I happen to think that's an argument for its truthfulness. The questions we raise, people have to address and solve in some way or another by denying it or changing it. Secondly, every view has a practice that it conforms to the faith. Faith and practice are always connected. And we can do that with every issue. And we'll try to do a little bit of this in our next lecture when we talk about what is this thing called humanism or the New Age movement. 
or Islam or communism or the homosexual ideology or consumerism. Okay, we can only introduce those words briefly tonight, but we're going to come back, rebuild this very quickly, and then we're going to look at how each of those ideologies that we confront all around us, they touch every one of us every day, how does that impact an ultimate view of reality that Christianity brings to us? So, our conclusion, you have a worldview. Even if you say, I don't like these kind of questions, you have, you have a worldview. You can't run from it. It's a worldview as much you as the air you breathe and the water you drink and the food you eat. It's what makes life possible. And the Christian says, this is our reality. And we speak it with truth and love. Okay, we'll stop there for uh, tonight. We'll see you tomorrow. Martin, if you and Kay would come up, we're going to close in a song. In a prayer. Again, tomorrow at 1 o'clock, Dr. Lubach will be talking about uh, America and its founding and uh, Christian worldviews behind that. And then
Thank you so much for coming. Tomorrow night at 6 p.m. before our gathering is a potluck dinner. Now, one thing our church is good at, it's eating. We know how to have a party. So come, bring your families, join, bring one of the dishes you like to make and make it double and bring it uh, a main course or a salad or a dessert. Come and join us tomorrow night at 6 o'clock and then the program will begin at 7. And if you're not coming, send, a, send the food. You know, we'll eat it anyway. Okay. Now may the God of hope, the God of hope, Fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. That you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We'll see you tomorrow.